Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, <laughs> though we are going to be in many places this morning. Uh, so, it's going to be somewhat of uh, what a professor of mine used to call a lermon. It's a lecture sermon. Uh, so, it gets me off the hook for any criticism. Uh, <laughs> And so it's not exactly a sermon. It's also not exactly a lecture. There's going to be pieces of both. <laughs> so uh, last week, what are we doing? Uh, the title of our message is uh, Sabbath and the Lord's Day. And so um, I made a comment, just a passing comment in our study last week in Genesis, or sorry, in, um, in Luke, that... Uh, as Jesus is talking about the Sabbath, though he didn't um, uh, deal with this issue in particular in that passage, I made this passing comment that we are no longer under the Sabbath regulations in the New Covenant. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to just take a pause, pull off to the rest stop on the road of Luke, and deal with this issue that uh, kind of arises in our minds as to the Sabbath. And how do we relate to the Sabbath? How do we understand the Sabbath? Because this is a big question in uh, the life of the Christian that we need to think through rightly. Also in our men's study, we've been going through book of the Bible by book of the Bible. We went through the law in Exodus, Leviticus, in uh, parts of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so questions come up of what's our relationship to the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant as new covenant believers. And so we address some of those things, but this is a very very specific question related to the Sabbath uh, regulations. And so if we were to start, maybe we could just remind ourselves of what Jesus said about his relationship to the Sabbath in Luke chapter 6, verse 5. This is the middle verse of the section we looked at last week in verses 1 to 11. Luke 6, verse 5 says, and he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we spoke about how this indicates that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Because who sanctified the Sabbath? Who set the Sabbath apart? Or, or rather, who set the seventh day apart as holy? Well, it was the Creator who did that. And who was it that gave the Sabbath command to Israel uh, on Mount Sinai? It was God, the Creator. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. And you can think about it like this. The one who has authority over the Sabbath gets to determine what everything means. It get, he gets to determine um, the significance of everything. By setting apart the seventh day as holy, it is God's way of saying, uh, I rule over all of it, all of creation. I determine all things. And so, with that, we see Jesus is divine, and what we're about to look at in Luke chapter 6 in a couple weeks is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And what happens? Jesus goes up onto a mountain, and then he comes down, and he preaches a sermon uh, that is one of the greatest sermons of all time, the greatest hits. And what does he do? He gives his law. So here is, like Moses, a prophet like Moses, greater than Moses, coming down from a mountain like Moses and giving a law. And that is really what the Sermon on the Mount is, as he brings this new covenant law. Uh, there are similarities, to be sure, with 
the old covenant, and yet it is also a whole new covenant, as we call it, the new covenant. Uh, so that is what Jesus is doing. And so how is this going to relate to the Sabbath? To be sure, Jesus never violated the Sabbath in his life. He violated intentionally the man-made traditions of the Pharisees on the Sabbath, and we had fun thinking about some of those. Um, you can't spit on the ground because it might make some dirt or some mud, and, and then you know, that might be the first beginning process of making bricks to make a house, and that would be work, you know, it's like, so they made up all these things, and Jesus was intentional to disregard man-made rules, but he was always intentional to keep the law. For, after all, Galatians 4 tells us that Jesus was born under the law. What law? The Mosaic law. And he was born under the law to come and fulfill it, to obey it, and obey all of the law of God, uh, and, uh, and manifest the character of God in that and to bring it to its completion. So this morning, what we want to look at is the question of how New Covenant believers relate to the Sabbath laws in the Mosaic Covenant. That's what we want to look at. Um, and uh, I have uh, seven points because seven days in the week, right? <laughs> so there you go. It's not, some of them are not that long, so don't you have little faith. Uh, <laughs> uh, before we look at those, though, I want to just give you somewhat of an intro on what are the views, how do Christians view uh, the Sabbath? And there's different views on this. Um, we'll call view one, and let me just say in the beginning of this that understanding the Sabbath today can be hard work. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're still with me. <laughs> um, so, uh, view one is really uh, what we might call, well, well, we'll call it the Seventh-day Adventist or Seventh-day Baptist. I think actually the Seventh-day Adventist got the, their view by Seventh-day Baptist. Um, and so, the view there is actually quite simple. It's that uh, really the uh, much of the Mosaic law still is binding upon us, and in particular, the Sabbath command. And so because the Sabbath is the seventh day, Saturday, and that's what was given to Israel, uh, and the New Testament doesn't change that day to another day, it doesn't change the Sabbath, then we need to still worship on the seventh day, not on the first day of the week, uh, Sunday. So they would be committed to worshiping on Saturday, and believe that that would be in fulfillment of the law of Moses. And so this is the view of Seventh-day Adventists. And um, they would be correct, I believe, that the New Testament does not change the Sabbath into the Lord's Day. Uh, it, there is no command or indication that this is being changed. So if you understand that the Mosaic law is still binding on Christians today, then it is a logical step to say, well, then we need to keep the Sabbath on Saturday. Okay, so that's view one. View two is, we could call it a couple things. Uh, we'll call it Sunday Sabbatarian um, or Reformed Confessionalism. This is the view of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, and really the idea here is that, uh, yes, the Sabbath command uh, has been, was given by God and it was binding on all men for all time uh, and it was the seventh day, Saturday, until the resurrection of Christ 
at which point it got moved to Sunday. And so now the Sabbath is to be observed on Sunday. So the Sabbath in some way is still uh, binding on the Christian, but it is no longer Saturday, it is Sunday. And so there's differences of opinion among Sabbatarians as to what is allowable and not allowable to do on a Sunday. So, you know, you might say, have disagreements of, you know, can you, can you watch sports in the afternoon on TV? Can you play sports? You know, can you, what can you do and not do on the Sabbath? And there's intramural discussions about how that should look. One of the reasons that they would argue this way, and let me just, as a footnote, as we introduce this view, I love the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. I actually think it is an incredible document. Uh, This is one of those areas where I would say it differently. I don't agree with view two, the Sunday Sabbatarian view, and we'll see why in just a moment. Here's how they get there, though. The way that they view the Mosaic Law, and this is pretty common, maybe you've heard about this before, is they look at the Mosaic Law in three parts. They look at it as moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. So the ceremonial laws deal with the sacrificial system and how Israel is to relate to God through the sacrifices that the priests do. The civil laws deal with Israel's government, laws that deal with uh, how they're to function as a government because they're a theocracy. And then there are what they call moral laws, which they'll usually describe as enshrined in the Ten Commandments and uh, the Ten Words. So those are the three. Now, while that is a logical construct to think through the law, it doesn't seem to be a biblical one. There is no uh, indication in Scripture that the Old Testament saints understood the law in that threefold way, nor the New Testament. Uh, in fact, James says in James 2.10 uh, that if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken all of it. Uh, so it, they're, 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 it's, it's a hard case to make that this was the way they viewed the law. In fact, uh, all, of the moral, all of the law of Moses was moral. So if you broke a civil law, that was a moral infraction. If you broke a ceremonial law, that was a moral infraction. So it was all binding in that way. It was a moral uh, issue. So it's also hard to, to say which ones are which. Like what category do you put some in? The Sabbath is a great example. Uh, if you break the Sabbath, that's a, that's a moral violation. But then it's also dealing with Israel's worship practices. So it's ceremonial, but it also has to do with their government and their whole calendar system, which relates to their civil. So you go, which one does this fall into? And so this is a, a challenge. So I think it's better to view the entirety of the Mosaic law as just one unit. When they saw the law, they saw it as one. Uh, so... Um, now, the, the scriptural evidence that they would cite in the confessions for this support are three texts that they would understand that the, the Saturday Sabbath has now been moved to Sunday. Beyond just the, the, the very logical, uh, evident point that Jesus rose on the first day, in addition to that, they would say Acts 20, verse 7. Acts 20, verse 7. These are actually the, the three that are listed in the confessions. Acts 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart in the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. So there's a service, and Eutychus falls asleep. Even the best preachers put people to sleep. Paul puts Eutychus to sleep. He falls out the window. He dies. Paul resurrects him and keeps preaching. You know, it's like, so I love, you know, it's like, so anyway, I won't do that to you today. Uh, So they say on the first day of the week. So here's where they're gathered. They're all gathered on the first day of the week. Well, 
Yes, that's true. I agree that the church has always met on the first day of the week, Sunday. But notice there's no command here or anything saying that the Sabbath has moved to this day. It's just an observation. This is when they were meeting. Another example that they give is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the church meets, and they're meeting. Here it is on the first day of the week. Uh, so they're meeting on Sunday, and Paul says, hey, have a collection so that you're prepared for when I come. So once again, the pattern is there, uh, but nothing connecting the Sabbath to it. It's just the fact that this is when they're, they're meeting. Uh, Revelation 1.10 is the other and final reference. Revelation 1.10, so Paul, John gets this vision from the Lord Jesus that he writes down, and it says in chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then he, he gets to the revelation. So notice here it says that it was on the Lord's day. So why is it the Lord's day? And what day is this? Well, it's no doubt Sunday. It's the first day of the week. Why is it the Lord's day? Because this is the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So, uh, so this is where the church has traditionally met on Sunday, and rightly so. Um, but notice that there really is no connection in the verses with the Sabbath. It is stating when the church met, but it doesn't say that this is a new Sabbath. That is an inference that is being made by the second view that I don't think can be warranted. So then not only that, we said there's challenges like what can you not do and not do? Because if you do say that, it, that Sunday is now the Sabbath, now you have to real, figure out, okay, like, well, there's a lot of restrictions on the Sabbath, so how do we bring that over? How do we understand that? What are we allowed and not allowed to do? So I think it's much simpler to um, see the whole Mosaic law as a whole, one unit, and the new covenant takes its place. And the, Lord, the, the church now meets on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and that has been the practice of the church from the earliest of days. Now, here's view three, and we'll just call it the right view. <laughs> the right view. <laughs> I'm not trying to influence you at all. <laughs> um, uh, so... <laughs> This view says that the Sabbath command has been fulfilled along with the entirety of the Mosaic covenant and Mosaic law, and therefore it is not binding on the Christian in the new covenant in any way. The Lord's Day worship on Sunday is a separate reality and not a new kind of Sabbath. Now, hear me correct. I'm not, so I'm not saying that Lord's Day worship is optional. <laughs> Actually, it is commanded that we gather with God's people in Hebrews 10. We'll see that later. But I'm saying that they are separate things. The Sabbath was fulfilled as the sign of the Mosaic Covenant when that passed away, became obsolete. And now we are in the new covenant and the people of God have worshiped on the first day of the week, Sunday. But we don't have all of the regulations and commands about working on the Sabbath uh, put onto the believer on Sunday. Now, last time, um, you know, it was a couple times ago, we looked at a number of passages that show us uh, the, Paul's understanding and others uh, of how we understand uh, the relationship of the new covenant to the old. And so, uh, what I want to do is just kind of remind you of a couple of these. So start, let's start in chapter 10 of Romans. 
just to show you the, the big picture that the new covenant has in fact replaced the old covenant law of Moses. I like to say that the Mosaic law, even in the Old Testament, was like a gallon of milk that had an expiration date on it. It had a time of expiration. And when was that? The new covenant. Jeremiah says, I'm making a, a, a new covenant with you, um, not like the covenant I made with your forefathers. So there's, there's a distinction between these two. And the implication is the one will replace the other. So then you get to Romans 10 verse 4, and we read something like this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the law there is uh, no doubt the Mosaic law. It, he is here, here, he's what the law pointed to. So the Mosaic law pointed to Christ in many ways, right? The sacrificial system, great example. Here's how sacrifice has to be done. Here's how salvation, giving them a sense of what this should look like. And so it points to, but not only does it point to, when Christ comes, he is also, he completes it. So he fulfills the purpose of it and then, then brings it to an end. And so there's a very clear statement. Um, a few weeks ago, we looked at Romans 7. And the illustration Paul uses of marriage and when someone's divorced, they're free to remarry. And he uses that as an illustration of how we are freed from the Mosaic law. So verse six, or verses five and six of Romans seven. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. I think he's, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant there. He's saying we are, when Christ died, we died to uh, the, the Mosaic law and we're now released from that law. And I'll say this a few times throughout. Um, to say that we are not under the Mosaic law does not mean as Christians we are lawless people, <laughs> right? We are, uh, of course, under law, but what law code, right? Like uh, if one country is in existence and they have a law code, a law system, and then another country comes and displaces them and that country ceases to exist and they have a law code of their own. Well, you're not under that other law code because it's it's gone. It's, it's, it's become obsolete. But there may be a lot of similarity between the two that you're under the new system. And, and so we're not lawless. And here's how you know that. Paul, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. This is an amazing statement, very clarifying on this issue. Paul talks about his evangelistic strategy and how he interacted with Jews and Gentiles, how he sought to reach them where they were. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law. Okay, now, what law could he possibly be talking about? Under the law. Well, no doubt they're thinking the Mosaic law. Those who are under the law. And who is that? Jews. He just said, to the Jew, I become like a Jew. So to those who are under the law, read Mosaic law. To those who are under the Mosaic law, I became as one under the law. I became as if I was under the law. Like, well, Paul, aren't you a Jew? Aren't you under the Mosaic law? But look what he says. Though not being myself under the law. What? Paul, what do you mean by that? Paul understands himself to no longer be under the Mosaic system. 
Then he says that he does this so that I might win those under the law. So what would this look like? Well, Paul would probably eat kosher and not offend a Jew when he goes to witness to them and meet in their house. He's not going to eat pork, even though he can now. He's not going to eat shrimp, even though he can now. And it's delicious. But he's not going to do that. He's going to give up that freedom because he wants to reach them. He doesn't want to unnecessarily offend them. Verse 21, to those outside the law. Who is outside the law? Gentiles. Gentiles were not under the Mosaic law. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But then he says this, lest we misunderstand, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. This is an incredibly helpful passage to see how Paul viewed himself. So Paul says, I'm not under the Mosaic law, but I'm also not a lawless man. I'm under the law of God. So he gives us a category of the law of God, which is transcendent from Adam to, you know, the end, right? So from all time, the transcendent law of God, a reflection of the character of God, written on the heart of man, and, and you have that, but then you have the Mosaic law, which is a particular instantiation of God's law for a particular time and place and people, uh, namely Israel. So Paul is saying, oh, I'm always under the law of God, but that law in Moses has passed away. Now we're under the law of Christ, the commands that are Christ has given and in the New Testament, and that is the law that I am under. It's called the law of love, the royal law. James will talk about that as well. So um, one more passage uh, to, to make this point. And this is going to kind of slot things in place for us. Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. So Hebrews 8 is, is kind of interesting because he quotes at length Jeremiah 31. And why is that significant? Because that indented section in Hebrews 8 in your Bible is a quote about the new covenant. Uh, he, God is going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, verse 8. And it's not like the covenant he made with their fathers, not like the Mosaic covenant. And then after quoting at length this new covenant passage, verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. The first one is the Mosaic covenant. He makes that one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And lest you be confused about what covenant he's talking about that's going to become obsolete and vanish, Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And so now he begins to describe the sacrificial system of the Mosaic system. And so what he's saying is, when the new covenant came, it made the old one obsolete. You know, you think of planned obsolescence. Your phone is meant to break down eventually so that you have to buy a new one, right? And the company can make money. That's the idea of the Mosaic Covenant. It was a planned obsolescence. It served a purpose. Paul calls it a guardian. Like for a young person, you would give them, hire a tutor to make sure that they, you know, pay attention in school and, hey, listen, you know, <laughs> and then once they become an adult, though, you you know, let the tutor go. They get another job somewhere else. But that's the idea. The Mosaic law was to prepare Israel for the Messiah. When the Messiah came, the tutor was no longer needed. Now, in relationship to, we're going to get back to this, to the Sabbath now, with that in mind, so if you think about the whole entirety of the Mosaic covenant coming to its completion and fulfillment and no longer binding then upon the new covenant believer, what do we think about Sabbath? Well, if the entirety of the Mosaic system has been fulfilled and the sign of that covenant is the Sabbath, then it follows that the sign would also not be binding on the believer. And that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. 
Go to there, Colossians 2. And we've been reading through Colossians, so we've actually read this very recently. So Colossians 2. And he says this in verse 16. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, actually, no, it's better to read verse uh, 13 because you get some context. And you who were dead in trespass, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So notice that, that idea of legal demands placed upon us. This, we're free from that in the death of Christ. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Then he says this, here's the application. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Okay, so think about food and drink. Why is that relevant to a Jew? The dietary laws, right? Dietary laws. Don't let it, he's saying in the new covenant, don't let anyone pass judgment on you on what you eat and drink. Hey, you can't eat that. That violates the Mosaic code. That violates the food laws. He says, don't be bothered by that. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you because you're not bound by that is the idea. So that's the first category, food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, some who, who take view two will, will say, well, this is probably related to the Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee on the 50th year. It's not referring to the weekly Sabbath. That still remains. But that you'd be hard-pressed to make that case because look what Paul does. He actually speaks in all these different categories. He says, with regard to a festival, those are Israel's annual yearly festivals. The new moons are a monthly thing, and then the Sabbath is the weekly thing. So he's saying none of those are binding on you anymore. You could say it like this. They're optional, but they're no longer obligatory. If you want to celebrate the Sabbath, you can do that. You're not in sin to do that. If you want to celebrate the Passover, you can do that, but you're not bound by that, nor can you call others to submit to that anymore. Uh, circumcision is no longer required for, is not required for Gentiles, but Jews, they can absolutely keep in circumcising their children, but they're not doing it because to indicate salvation, but because they're a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so, so he's saying it's, it's no longer obligatory, it's, it's optional. And so Paul is saying you're no longer under these things. Well, why would that be? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. These things pointed towards Christ. Now Christ has come, and these things are no longer binding. They taught a lesson. Okay. I hope this doesn't discourage you. That was my introduction. Okay, so <laughs> here we go. We set it up, all right? These are the three views. Now, what I want to do is look at through these these various points here, with that framework in mind, and I think it'll help you tremendously as we think through this uh, to have that uh, fresh in your mind. Okay, so let's go to Genesis 2, and we'll call this first point the paradigm of the Sabbath. The paradigm of the Sabbath. Genesis 2. This is the seventh day, God's creation. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the paradigm for the Sabbath is God's creation rest. And God did not rest because he was tired, right? He's omnipotent. He uh, never grows tired or weary. 
So that's not what this rest means. This rest is ceasing from working. That's the idea. He stopped working. He created on the first six days, and he stops working on the seventh, and he sets it apart. Now, you ever think about this? Why do we have a seven-day week? Why do we have a seven-day week? I mean, we understand that a day is based on the rotation of the earth. We understand that a month can be uh, seen by the, 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 the moon cycle. Uh, and then we understand a year is a one rotation around the, the, the sun. The earth's rotating around the sun. So, orbiting the sun. So, but why a week? Where do we get a week from? I'll tell you where we get it from. God created the world in six days, and he set the seventh apart, rested on the seventh. What a great way to evangelize someone. Everyone follows a seven-day week, except the French during the French Revolution who tried a 10-day work week, and it didn't last for long. <laughs> and so, uh, but through all of history, people follow this seven-day pattern. That's incredible. There's no astrological thing to, uh, to, to point to that. And so you say, hey, why, do, why a week? Why do we have seven days? I don't know. You ever thought it was because God created the world? God created you. He's your authority. He determines everything for your life. Do you live that way? Oh, you don't. You're your own king. You've rebelled against the king. So you need to be made right with the king because you've sinned against him. And he will punish wrongdoers. You need the gospel. You need Christ who has come. And he said, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You need Christ, my friend. All that by, the, by a week, right? So you can feel free to use that you know, for free. You don't even have to quote me. Uh, so it's a good way to share the gospel. All right. Interestingly enough, um, after the creation, we God rests. Well, he, he somewhat gets back to work after the fall. He makes garments for Adam and Eve. And then Jesus says in John 5, verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. So, so this, is, this idea is God is teaching them something in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. There is a kind of rest that is God's rest. God's rest. It is an Edenic rest, a creational rest, a rest where the creation, the place that God has made is at peace and harmony, where the people of God enjoy the presence of God and the peace of God. That is this Edenic rest. And guess what? Genesis, the seventh day, doesn't end like all the other six days end. There was evening and there was morning. It's like this day that goes on. Now, it is a 24-hour day, just to be clear for answers in Genesis, in case they're listening. <laughs> but, uh, but it is a 24-hour day. But the point is, he doesn't say that at the end because this is supposed to be a perpetual enjoyment of rest, the, the life of God and the soul of man that Adam is to enjoy. So, yes, Adam was given labor and work to do, but it was a restful work. So he's given a task to do, but it was to be all done in the enjoyment of God's rest, this relationship with God with, in the perfect place. That sets up this whole trajectory in Scripture for rest. Now, notice something that's absent in Genesis 2. There's no command. <laughs> There's no command to observe any kind of regulation or restriction on the seventh day. It is simply stating the fact that God set this day apart, he sanctified it, and he gave it as a, a way to show that all of life was to be rest for Adam, even his work. And so this was to be a perpetual day. Of course, the fall interrupts that, and man is then forever seeking to get back to Eden, back to the rest of God. And so the seventh day would be a reminder that God created the world and that there is such a thing as God's rest. 
And so that's the paradigm for the Sabbath. It's not the institution of the Sabbath. It is the paradigm. It's the, it's the archetype. It's, it's what kind of is the basis that gets picked up later. So then the second point we want to make is the period of the Sabbath. When was the Sabbath command given and when did it expire? And the easy answer is the Mosaic era, the Mosaic covenant. When did God give the command to not work on the Sabbath day? Some claim that this was always a command from the creation, that Adam and Abraham and uh, Noah were all to keep this command and have regulations. But the only problem is there's never any indication that people did that before the Mosaic law. The command to rest and not labor on the seventh day gets tied back to the seventh day to be sure as its basis, but that is different than saying that this was always a command built into creation to be observed by all people. And so those before Moses were not bound to observe the Sabbath regulations. And we have no indication of anyone prior to Moses uh, being called to or observing those regulations. Coupled with the lack of a command in Genesis 2, it seems hard to argue that believers were following Sabbath regulations prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law. Look at number, uh, Nehemiah. Well, just listen to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you could jot this down. Nehemiah 9, verses 13 and 14. And it's recounting Israel's history. It says, you came down, it's talking about God, you came down on Mount Sinai, so that's where the Mosaic Law was given, and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. It seems like the implication is this is when God reveals this command to Israel at Sinai. He, he gives them the Sabbath at that point, implying that it wasn't a binding command before that. Interestingly, John Gill and John Bunyan both pointed out, these were like Puritan guys, uh, that there was no indication that anyone was accountable to the Sabbath law prior to Moses. The first instance of the Sabbath observance is found in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Now technically this is just before the giving of the law, but it's almost like we could call it the beta test. This is the beta test for the Sabbath. And you remember what happened in Exodus chapter 16? Israel is in the wilderness. They need food. God provides manna, which means what is it? And they eat it all the time. They have to make banana pancakes, banana muffins, you know. Okay, you learn that in seminary. You have to use it uh, whenever possible. So uh, they're having bread from heaven. And God then says, okay, now I want you to do this. On the sixth day, on Friday, I want you to gather, I'm gonna make double and I want you to gather it up so that you don't have to gather anything on the seventh day. And this, it says that it was a test for Israel. In Exodus 16, verse 2, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Moses when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And then he gives them the instruction. Uh, and it says in verse um, four, yeah. Then Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses said to Aaron and to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. So here's what they're to do. Gather extra. And so it's, this is a test. Now, if it's a test, it, it's hard to say that this was always being practiced. 
if God is introducing this as a test. It seems more likely that this is the very first time Israel is called to obey this regulation, to gather extra so they can rest on the Sabbath. And that is in preparation for what's going to happen in chapter 20, which is where the law is actually given. So Exodus chapter 20, this is the 10, the 10 words. It actually matches the 10 words that God spoke at creation, showing that all of these 10 commandments actually have some kind of basis in creation. We've already learned that the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, actually does go back to creation in that it it shows the the basis of this being the day that God rested. So verse 8, chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so uh, this is also given in Deuteronomy chapter five. And I wanna read that because it's slightly different actually. In Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 12 observe, so in, it's remember in Exodus, it's observe, but they're really kind of the same. Uh, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as Yahweh your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Notice there's a difference. Well, not only is there a difference between uh, Exodus 16 and Exodus 20, because in Exodus 16, the only regulation is about the manna. There's no other uh, stipulations given. When you get to 20, it, it broadens out. There's more things that you can't do on the Sabbath. And then the reason for the Sabbath in Exodus 20 is connected to remember your creator who created. In, in Deuteronomy 5, it's actually tied to the Exodus. Remember when you were brought out of slavery, and so you were redeemed. So in Exodus 20, the Sabbath command is to remind you of creation. And in Deuteronomy 5, it's to remind you of redemption which actually points forward. God redeemed you in the past, but that is a foretaste of what God is going to do to redeem his people in the future. So already we're starting to see this this Sabbath principle points forward also in addition to pointing backwards to creation. It points back to a creation, but it points forward to a new creation. Okay, so when did the law, the Sabbath law, become binding upon men? When God gave the Mosaic law. And notice it was given to Israel in particular. The pagan nations were not condemned for failing to observe the Sabbath. There's a lot of, uh, in the prophets, you'll have like, this nation is being judged and that nation's being judged. And you'll notice that what they're being judged for are just the law of God written on their heart type sins. They're never judged for not observing the Mosaic law because they're not under that law. And they're never condemned for not following the Sabbath. And so that's when God gives the Sabbath command in the Mosaic law. So, We've seen, uh, we've seen the paradigm of the Sabbath, Genesis 2 and creation. The period of the Sabbath is established in the Mosaic era. Then there's the prohi- prohibitions on the Sabbath. And this, this is easy because we just read what some of these are in Exodus 20 and, uh, and Exodus, or sorry, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. 
And so it's instituted in the wilderness. We read those passages. What was prohibited? Every Saturday, they were to rest from their labors and worship God in a special way. And it didn't prohibit necessities, but the regular work that was to be put off. And so here's a couple of things that explicitly are stated. Exodus 35.3, kindling a fire was prohibited. Exodus 16, 23 to 29, gathering manna. Uh, Numbers, sorry, Nehemiah 10, 31. Chapter 13, verses 15 to 22, condemns selling goods on the Sabbath. Uh, Bearing burdens in Jeremiah 17, 19 to 27 is not permitted. But then there's a lot of activities that are permitted. I'm not gonna give you the verses on these. So these are the activities permitted. Military campaigns, marriage feasts, dedication feasts, visiting a man of God, changing temple guards, preparing showbread and putting it out, uh, offering sacrifices, uh, duties of priests and Levites, opening the East Gate. So there's a number of things that, yeah, these are, these are work, but they're uh, allowable. So this is, this, these are the prohibitions on the Sabbath. What is the punishment then? This is our next point. What is the punishment for Sabbath breaking? So if you're still in Exodus, Exodus 35. Exodus 35. Verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that Yahweh has commanded you to do. For six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. There's the punishment, death. And there's other passages. You, of course, have an example of this happening in Numbers chapter 15. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 32, it says, but while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it, because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And Yahweh said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as Yahweh commanded Moses. Why was this so serious? Because the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. This is what God gave uh, to show his people. So, Exodus 31, verse 12, Yahweh said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. So think of the Noahic covenant, sign of the Noahic covenant, rainbow. Sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. Sign of the Mosaic covenant, Sabbath. So, okay, maybe an illustration. Uh, If a husband gets angry and he grabs a pillow and just throws it on the ground, maybe sinful anger. It would be bad. Something to repent of. But if he took off his ring and threw it across the room in anger, that communicates something different. That is much more serious. And so it's as if breaking the Sabbath is like Israel taking off their ring and saying, I'm going to huck this across the room. It's saying, I'm not under this covenant. It is a total disregard for the people. So that's why, in part, it's so serious. This is the, pro, uh, the punishment for Sabbath breaking. Now, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? What is the purpose of this regulation? Well, a couple things. We've already looked and pointed out. It was to remember God's creation rest, Exodus 20, verse 11. 
Then in Deuteronomy 5.15, it's to remember God's redemption work and the future redemption that is going to be brought. So one looks backward at creation and one looks forward at the final, at a future restoration, a greater redemption in the future by reminding them of the greatest deliverance up to that point, the Exodus. Peter Goman says this about, or Peter Gaiman about the purpose of the Sabbath. He says, God is the author of creation and he also holds the power to redeem mankind and bring them back to paradise. Israel's relationship with God was to exemplify this wondrous reality before the watching nations. So it's to picture this, this, that God is creator and God is redeemer. We've already said it's the sign of the covenant. That was another purpose of it, to be a sign to mark them out. It was to show their dependence upon God, to provide for them when they took, the, took work off while other nations were not doing so. And another purpose of the Sabbath was acknowledgement of God's lordship and authority over their lives as the God of all time. And here's where I think it's helpful to, to remember that even, if, even though the, the Mosaic law is not binding on Christians, that does not at all mean you can neglect the Mosaic law because there are principles built into that that reflect God's creation principles and theology that we absolutely have to apply to our lives. And here's a good example of that. The principle remains applicable for us today that even though we're not bound by Sabbath observance, God is still sovereign over every aspect of your life. He rules your calendar. The same writer I just quoted said this, the fourth commandment teaches that God is Lord over our resources, time, effort, produce, Because God is who he is, one must recognize God as authority over everything. When Israel obeyed the Sabbath, albeit rarely in their existence, they proclaimed Yahweh's lordship to the watching nations. And so, okay, we don't have a calendar. There's no Christian calendar. I know we celebrate Christmas and Easter. There's no command to do that in the New Testament. It is more of a tradition. And so we don't have uh, feast days or holidays like Israel had. We're not commanded in that way. But we learn from the principle behind why God gave these to Israel and we live accordingly. It was God saying, I own your calendar. You follow these things because I'm sovereign over your life and time. And I think though we're not under those same celebrations, we still are under that principle that God is the sovereign and he does direct our lives. So we ask the question then in application, does your life indicate that God is sovereign over every part of it? Does he rule over how your time is spent, how your resources are managed, and how you steward what has been given to you? So that's a good application to take away from that principle. Okay, we're nearing the end. This is the purpose of the Sabbath. Now let's look at the practice of the Sabbath. And what I mean here by practice is, what should our practice be in light of the Sabbath? We ask the question, are New Covenant believers bound to observe or practice Sabbath in any way? And of course, you know my answer, no. We don't have to practice the Sabbath regulations. And I want to look at three passages, one that we've already looked at. Um, The first is in Romans, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And I'm going to start in verse 1. We're looking at focusing on 5 to 7, but verse 1. As for those who are weak in faith, welcome them. Welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So already he's talking about food restrictions, which no doubt reminds the, the Jew-Gentile distinction here, the Jews and Gentiles in the church, rather, these, these laws for the Jews that they're having a hard time, some of them, letting go of. And he's saying, hey, it's okay. If they want to follow those things, they can do that. But just be patient with them. They're still coming out of this system where they've always had to do this. Uh, verse five then, he says, one person esteems one day is better than another. Who do you think that might be? It might be the Jew who establishes and esteems the Sabbath day is higher than all the others. And then he says, while another esteems all days alike. And then he says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one, so it's about your conscience. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. So here's the thing, he's saying, if they still have weak faith, and they haven't realized all this and put this all together, that's okay. If they want to still honor that day, if they still want to keep certain uh, food restrictions, they're not bound by that, but, but don't force them. Be patient with them. But really, if you value one day above another, or all days alike, that's fine. And so this is, this is really an, an astonishing thing to say if you were still under the Mosaic Covenant. Paul does not view... Uh, it that way. He's saying, hey, uh, if you see all days as rest because you've rested in Christ, which is the right view, um, great. If you want to seem one day is higher than another, you can do that yourself. That's your own conscience. Let him be convinced in his own mind. Here's another, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. Galatians 4 verse 8. <clears throat> he says this, formally, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. I think what he's saying here is, listen, you guys, you're not under this anymore. These, These calendar things, as well as days, you're free from that, but, but you're so concerned about that. I think he's calling them out. No doubt. Uh, what would have come to mind was all the restrictions in the Mosaic system. And then Colossians, one more time. Go back there to Colossians. Let's read this again. We read it earlier. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards to food and drink, with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so we've already pointed out here uh, these different categories. And Paul, I mean, can you imagine Paul saying this if the Mosaic Covenant was still in place? How could he possibly say that and get away with it? And yet he does not see the need to observe this day in the way that it was under the Mosaic stipulations. He can't impose a standard upon others. So, One writer says this, uh, 
The purpose of Israel's existence as a nation, per the Mosaic Covenant, was to be a light to the other nations. The Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It pointed Israel and the nations back to God's rest, which God prepared for the human race. However, since the Mosaic Covenant has been rendered inoperative, the laws which were attached to that covenant are also done away with. These laws, which have been rendered inoperative, even include the Sabbath law, which was the sign of that covenant. And so, as we've said already, it makes sense that when the Mosaic Covenant is made obsolete, then the sign of that covenant, the Sabbath, would also be made obsolete. And so we're not bound to the Sabbath regulations any more than we are bound to the dietary laws of the Mosaic Code. Now, what are some principles, though, to learn from the Sabbath? We've already kind of hinted at some of these. What are the principles? We're not bound by this, but we've already pointed out that God has authority over our time. Your calendar belongs to God. His priorities must be your priorities. We too learn from this principle, despite not having any holy days in the Christian church. Peter Gaiman says, although the New Testament states the Sabbath is no longer obligatory for the Christian, the principle behind the Sabbath is still very much in play. The Christian is to operate his life to demonstrate that God is in control. How one uses their time, their money, their talents, all of these decisions demonstrate to the watching world whether or not the Christian believes God is Lord over all things. And this then finally leads us to an eighth principle. I said seven, but you know what? The Lord's day is on the eighth day. So <laughs> the priority of the Lord's day. And we've already read these verses in Acts 27, 20 verse seven, 1 Corinthians 16, one to two, Revelation 1.10. What do we do with that? Well, we understand that this is the day the church worships. We are here on a Sunday, not on a Saturday. Because this is the day the Lord was raised from the dead. The Sabbath has been completed. It's come to its completion. Interestingly enough, what a fascinating observation. Jesus dies. This isn't mine. Uh, David Gibson made this observation. Jesus dies on the sixth day, the day of man, accomplishing redemption for mankind. He sleeps through the Sabbath day in the grave, and he rises on a new day of the new creation week. How cool is that? As Sunday is the day of resurrection. This is throughout Acts 28. On the first day of the week, Luke 23. On the first day of the week, after, six, after eight days, another Sunday, Jesus appears to them. And so Jesus is raised on the first day of the week. This is why the church has always met on Sundays. Not only that, the church began on a Sunday. Acts 2, it was on the day of Pentecost. And we're not going to do this for time's sake, but if you look at Leviticus 23, 15 to 16, and you learn when the day of Pentecost was supposed to be, in this case, it lands on a Sunday. And so the church begins on a Sunday. It's birthed on a Sunday. Jesus rises on the, from the grave on Sunday. And so the church from the earliest days have made this their practice. The epistle of Barnabas, in, written in between 70 and 100 AD. Ignatius of Antioch, around 108 uh, Justin Martyr in his first apology in the first 200 years of the church, they're all talking about how this is the practice of the church to worship on Sunday. And so this is the, the tradition. From its birthday, the church is gathered on the Lord's day. Not only that, we're commanded to gather with God's people regularly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 Mind you, this is in a context when the author of Hebrews is saying, you're not under the Mosaic law anymore. It's become obsolete and you're not bound by those regulations. But then he says this, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good, good works, not neglecting to meet together 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't stop meeting together. When do you meet? On the Lord's day. Now, actually, the church began in Acts meeting every single day of the week, but then as it kind of, uh, as time progressed, you get to Acts 20, and they're meeting on the first day of the week, primarily. Uh, And so he's saying, don't give up meeting together. When does the church meet? The church meets on Sunday. Uh, Why is this so important? Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. We need to gather. We, we love to gather. We, we love to remind ourselves of our great redemption and salvation on Sunday. On Saturday, we remember God created the world. And, and it just it happens in our culture that most people have off Saturday so they can be in the creation. And remember, God made the world. And then we gather on Sunday and we say, but God has redeemed us. He has redeemed us. Christ has been resurrected as the first fruits of our resurrection. And so Lord's Day worship ought to be penned in on our calendar. It ought to be the highest priority in our, in our week to gather with the people of God. I mean, uh, you know, whether you agree with them or not, there used to be like uh, Sabbath laws in our, in our land where things were closed on Sunday. I mean, Chick-fil-A, still, closed on Sunday. You see it on the interstate, right? So people can go to church, I guess, uh, Sunday worship is not optional for Christians. It is the new covenant day. It is not the Sabbath. It is not the new Sabbath. It is the day. That was the day of the old covenant, but the day of the new covenant is the Lord's day. It is his day, not our day. And we need more corporate worship, not less, as the world gets worse and worse, right? I mean, we need each other more and more increasingly. And what a joy it is to meet with the people of God each week. I mean, this is my favorite time of the week. Okay, let's bring this thing to a close. Let's land the plane here and, and realize how significant this theme of rest is, okay? Theme of rest introduced in Genesis. Genesis 2, God has a kind of rest that he's going to allow us to enter into. It is this Sabbath rest. It is the God's kind of rest, being in God's place as God's people with peace with God in his presence, Noah's name means rest, Genesis 5. He said to give his, he's gonna, they hope he's gonna give his people rest. The Noahic covenant would be kind of a temporary kind of rest as the waters cover the globe again, similar to the original creation, then the land appears again, and, and Noah is uh, giving the same commands as Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so it's kind of a rest. Abraham has promised to be a blessing to the nations. And how will that happen? By a seed of his coming from him. And it says in uh, 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 Genesis 49.10, that one is going to come from the line of Judah, and here's what he will do. 49.10, the scepter, so he'll be a king, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fowl to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. His washes garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. So in other words, this one is going to be a king and he's going to bring prosperity on the earth. Or you could say rest. He's gonna bring the world back to prosperity again because the vines are gonna be so massive you could tie your donkey to it and it's not gonna pull it away. Massive vines. 
Moses gave the law and the Sabbath command to remind Israel of the past, creation, and the future rest and deliverance God would give. Joshua brings the people into the land of rest in, in Canaan, but it's not a complete rest. David is promised rest when it says in 2 Samuel 7 that he had rest, but God promised him another rest that would come through the covenant he would make with him. Solomon, the son of David, is his kingdom is a preview of the coming kingdom of Messiah, and it's described as restful. In fact, in Genesis 49.10, it says, until Shiloh comes, it's another translation, and it's a name for Messiah. And it's very similar to Solomon's name. Shlomo is Solomon's name in Hebrew, and, and Shiloh is very similar. These are the ones who bring peace. They bring rest. And his kingdom, Solomon's, is a time of rest. And you know what the language they use of Solomon's kingdom? Every man sat under his vine and his fig tree. Where does that come from? Genesis 49.10. The vine is so massive that it's so productive the earth is. Why? Because the king has come and he reigns. And he's brought this Edenic rest back to the creation. Solomon's kingdom is a preview of that. Then the prophets start picking up and they speak about this future time when the Messiah comes and he's on the earth and he's reigning. And it says, in that day, Micah 4, Zechariah 3, every man will sit under his vine and his fig tree. And so there will be this Edenic rest when the Messiah comes, the fullness of it. Each of these rests points back to God's original creation rest in Genesis 2 that he intended for man to enjoy with him, this Edenic rest, but it also points us forward to the final culmination of that. And so how do you enter into that rest? The author of Hebrews says there, there yet remains a rest for the people of God in Hebrews chapter 4. He said, we enter by faith this rest, this rest with God. It is a future rest. When the Messiah returns, people are right with their king and he brings prosperity on the earth. So the place where we are is at peace. We are in God's presence and have peace with him. That is the Genesis 2 Edenic rest God has always intended for his people to have. And how do you get it? Through Christ, the one who brings rest. So when Christ shows up, interestingly enough, in the parallel passage to the section we looked at last week, in chapter 12, he is where that same story happens. We just studied, and, and Jesus says, I am the, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. What is right before that? Chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Listen, Here's what you must do. You must stop laboring to get back to the Edenic rest. Everyone is trying to work to get back to Eden. Their own ways, their own ways of pleasing God. But you cannot do it yourself. The gospel says you stop laboring for your salvation and you rest in the work of Christ that he has finished. Why do we not keep the Sabbath regulation? Because Christ has brought it to completion. In a way, you could say, we do keep the Sabbath rest every day. We don't rest on one day, every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The Christian is resting because they've given up their labors to get back to Eden, and they've rested in the one who has brought about the way back to Eden. 
that eternal Edenic rest. It is still coming, but those who believe in Christ, they trust in him, they stop laboring, and what a perfect picture of what faith in Christ is. It is resting. It is saying, God, I stop laboring for my own salvation, and I look to you alone. I look to the finished work of Christ. I hope that's you. I hope you found rest in Christ, and day in and day out, we come back and we say, I need to rest in you again. I need to stop striving in my labors to please you, God, and simply rest in the finished work of Christ, and that's the greatest motivation then to serve him. And we look forward. Let none of us come short of, of entering into that rest because of unbelief. He says, today is the day of salvation. Today, he says, to not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness because that generation did not get to enter the land of Canaan because of unbelief. And there will be many today who don't enter that heavenly Edenic rest on the new earth because of unbelief as well. They will be left out of the land while those with faith come into it. And so, here we go. The, this is the completion. This is the fulfillment Christ has brought of the Sabbath. So, do we, are we bound by the Sabbath? No. But, oh, oh, dear friend, we have such a greater rest than one day a week. We rest every day in Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for uh, such a trajectory you've given to us in Scripture of your plan. I mean, this is just one little nugget, uh, uh, one little aspect of your story that we've been able to trace somewhat through the scriptures, and it is glorious. Lord, we long for this rest to enter into that you have provided in Christ for us and that you will bring about. Oh, Lord, come quickly. Come back to this earth, Lord Jesus. Reign and rule over the earth. Establish this Edenic peace Bring the creation, bring the animal kingdom back into harmony. Bring us back into harmony with other people. Bring, make, it, make the land fruitful. R- roll back the curse, Lord. We long for this day, Lord. Give us hope in our, in our weariness on this side of that rest. And we would endure till the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond. Number five, how.